Hi, I'm Kenny. And this is Monica. And you're listening to Questioning Faith. A podcast where we discuss our journey with the Christian faith. In today's episode... Oh, the humanity. We discuss some of the things that disillusioned us to seeing the Bible as the perfect word of God. This is kind of a part two to our Sola Scriptura episode because so much of our belief system was built on believing that the Bible was the perfect word of God. So we really wanted to start touching on those key issues that were the initial pinpricks that pulled us out of that mindset. It's been really interesting thinking back on all of these beginning processes that we worked through so long ago and we've come so much farther along now that we're in a different place. But that transition from being completely immersed in the evangelical lifestyle and being thoroughly dependent upon every word of the Bible as complete truth and that transition out of it, it's been really interesting remembering back to that phase of our life and trying to articulate the process that pulled us out of it. Yeah, it's kind of difficult to do actually. It is. Because we've learned so much between then and now. Right. And so trying to discuss where we were then without putting too much of what we know now into it. What we it. know now right. into it is, has been uh, interesting. Right. Because we want to do it justice and be like honest about how that yeah. came about. And so interesting project. We hope you enjoy the episode and let us know what you think. So in our last episode, we talked about the doctrine of sola scriptura and issues that we can now see in it. But I would like to talk about how we came to that conclusion a little bit more. Before we left Christianity, we were under the impression that the Bible is God's word. Right. My question for this episode is, what disillusioned you to the idea that the Bible is the perfect, inerrant word of God that conveys all truth to you? And the answer to that question is tricky because it's a process I've heard described as death by a thousand cuts because it truly wasn't any one thing. It was a list of issues that kept building. Mm. And I had a list before entering into this devout evangelical Christianity, you know, in my youth. I had questions, but because I didn't know the Bible very well, I just assumed it was my own ignorance, not actual problems with the text. For instance, one of my lifelong questions that I've always had, I remember asking whenever given the opportunity, was about Adam and Eve. They were the first people on earth, and then Cain kills Abel, and his punishment is God basically banning him from the area, and he is sent out. And Cain's complaint about this is, they're going to kill me. Yeah, he's, he's afraid to have to go away from this place because he doesn't want to die from right, the hands of other people. He's afraid of all the other people. And I had read Genesis. That's the only part of the Bible I had read over and over because I had kept trying to understand the Bible. Right. And I kept getting to this part. Okay, Adam and Eve are the first people. Cain is scared of all these other people. So that didn't make sense to me. And yeah. then also who are, on top of that... Who are the that, other people? Right, who are these other people? And then yeah. on top of that, Cain goes to the land of Nod and finds a wife, east of Eden or wherever His, they yeah. were. And so that has been probably one of my founding biblical questions in my life that I had top of the list. Yeah. Where are these other people... Who's Cain afraid of, and how did he marry somebody that's not his family? 
Right. And so, and I had a growing list and sometimes my questions would get answered and sometimes they weren't, but I had either on paper or when smartphones developed, I had a growing list of Bible questions. Yeah. I remember that list. Yeah. I remember you'd get your phone out Mm -hmm. just at various times. It was maybe during a Bible study, you'd get it out to say, okay, I have questions. Yeah. Just tackle a few. Or it would be to add a question in. Right. Um, it could be like in the middle of service, someone might be preaching and you pull out your phone and you type down a question. Right. Uh, and I was so confident in the text that I was sure that there were answers to these questions. Right. And you wanted to log your questions. Right. For small group, for women's Bible study, for church, whenever we're given the opportunity to ask questions, this is my list. And I was sure there was answers. I just didn't know the Bible well enough or whoever I was asking just didn't know the Bible well enough to answer questions. Or maybe there weren't answers that we got to know yet, but someday. Maybe we'd get to know after we died and we were with Jesus. But nevertheless, these were the questions that I had. Mm. I suppose at a certain point after all of the read-throughs, it became more of a theological puzzle to figure out how all of these problems could have solves. Yeah, it was uh, it was intriguing. It was intriguing and it was difficult. How can we make all of these things that at this point seem to outright contradict oh, okay. have a solve? So they were all little puzzles that you had to figure out how to solve them. And then at some point it stopped feeling like like something that was honest and truthful, it started feeling like we were forcing the stories to fit together and we were having to find hoops to jump through to get them to fit together. Right, yeah, if this is the perfect word of God that is supposed to convey truth, Mm -hmm. why is it so vague? Why are there all these little issues that we have to sort out? Which kind of touches on one of my issues that disillusioned me, is that idea that the word of God is so interpretive. Right. There's so many parts of the Bible where because we have to figure out how to piece them together, there's a lot of interpretation that goes into that. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I was able to say, well, no, what we're doing is we're figuring out what it really says and what it really means. But over time, there were certain things that kind of took me out of that. And some of them were your questions that, well, that fix or that putting that puzzle piece in was me interpreting something, not necessarily the word of God conveying something. Yeah, not necessarily that the word of God fit together by its own merit, but that we were trimming these puzzle pieces and mashing them into place is what it started to feel like. Mm. Like the Judas story. Yeah. Judas hangs himself in one part of the New Testament, but then in another story, he is pierced in the gut and his intestines spill out on the ground. And he dives headlong in that story. So he falls head first, his guts spill out. And what I had heard done was he hung himself, the rope broke, there was some weird placement of rocks underneath him that flipped his body so that he fell head first. And there was a sword or a stick that ripped his stomach at the same time and his bowels spill out. They're like, wow, you just jumped through so many hoops to make both stories fit so that it's the perfect word of God. Instead of just letting it be a literary book where the intent of the author is to say that Judas died and they're not really concerned about the specifics. They just kind of make something up or go with the story that they'd heard and tell it. Right. Because we had based it in historical fact and God's word, everything's perfect, we had to make it fit together. And more and more, these stories kept coming up where it really felt like we were forcing them to fit together instead of them fitting by their own merit. Mm, yeah. There's hundreds of examples. Oh, sure. Yeah, there are, there are all of these apparent, well, we would have said then, all of these apparent contradictions in the text that we found ways to make them not contradictions like that with the Judas story of twisting and turning and adding in our own storytelling to it. You can reconcile anything right? when you're sure it's already true. Yeah, like another one like that would be on the cross. In one of the Gospels, both 
thieves so jesus is left and right are mocking him right and then in another gospel one of the thieves rebukes the one that's mocking him right and then that's where we get the famous line uh where jesus turns to that person and says i say to you today you will be with me in paradise right right there's this apparent contradiction okay in one story in one telling of the story two thieves are mocking him and in another telling of the story only one's mocking him and the other rebukes him rebuking him, him for yeah. mocking him and a very uh, and i can remember this one this is an example that Ryan really liked to use. Right. Of, I remember him explaining it. Yeah. That, okay, well, one of them is recording about how early on mm-hmm. in the crucifixion, because, right, the crucifixion lasts for hours. Yeah, there's hours. So at and one so part. At it, one point, both are mocking him and making fun of him. And then one of them, I suppose, seeing Jesus taking this like a champ, like the son of God. Yeah, or he, he comes is, around as he's close he comes to around death and, and then starts rebuking the other one. Yeah. And so it's just telling at two different times during the crucifixion. Right. Problem solved. Which... Okay, fine. That's not even really one of the big no, contradictions. No, it's not one of the big contradictions. But there are all of those little things where we would add in our own interpretation to make them work. Right. Instead of just accepting that, okay, this this one says this and this one says this. And they don't really go together, but okay. Right. We were insistent that it had to be perfect. Right. So what's another one, though, for you that was a real contradiction that actually caused an issue? Well, early on in our relationship, the biggest issue was Calvinism versus Arminianism. Oh, yeah. And I remember going through all these texts of the Bible that seems like God has a plan. He's going to work out his plan no matter what. He ascribes his Holy Spirit to the people that he wants to be saved. And it seems like the text is pretty clear that, yes, God is going to work out his plan and that you're chosen by God. And then those are the people he saves. But then there's a whole other slew of texts and entire books you can read about Arminianism and about how you have free will and you have choice to accept God. And so both of those, we went into details for years about those because there's so many texts that support both arguments. And so at one point had to accept both of these ideas have support. We don't really know. We just had to stop looking at it because it contradicted itself way too many times. But then like Judas contradictions, Jesus and the centurion, Mm. little things. So this one doesn't break your faith. But in one text in Matthew, this guy, Jairus, he goes to Jesus and he says, my daughter is dead. But in Luke, Jairus goes to Jesus and says, my daughter is dying. So which is it? Was the daughter already dead when Jairus gets to Jesus? Or is Jairus asking Jesus to heal his daughter while, while she's while still she's sick? dying, yeah. And neither one is a super big deal, except for that one of them is false. They've made a false statement. Is not fully accurate. And for the grand scheme of the story, the same thing ends up happening at the end. But the fact of the matter is, is that when Jairus gets to Jesus, the daughter's either dead or not. So one of the stories is wrong. So there's fallibility. Right. So you have to take the text more liberally and say the author was wrong in one of the stories. Yeah. You know, there's a there's another one like that where it doesn't have to... Right? It's like you said, like the death by a thousand cuts, right? It's, it's right, not necessarily it's all these little things. Right. It's not necessarily anything that's that big of a deal theologically or, or whatever, but you can look at all four Gospels in the resurrection account. Right. That's a big one. There's so many differences in the resurrection accounts. Yeah. And it's a big deal. It's a big story. It's kind of the crux of the whole thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the question is, okay, for the resurrection account, who went to the tomb? Right. Was it Mary Magdalene by herself? Depending on which gospel you read, it's different, right? So like for John, Mary Magdalene goes by herself. Right. And uh, then 
in Luke, there's two Marys, Joanna, and a bunch of other women. Yeah, so a group of women go mm-hmm. in Luke. In Mark, it's Mary, Mary, and... Salome. Yeah, it's three women. And then in Matthew, it's just the two Marys. Right. So all four Gospels give a different detail there. Right. At the very least, you could say Mary Magdalene went. All yeah, four of them say of them. Mary Magdalene went. But then they differ as far as who was there. And then you can continue this. Right. Was the stone already removed when they arrived? Or when they arrived, did an earthquake happen, as Matthew says, and the angels move it away? Right. In Mark, Luke, and John, the stone has already been removed and yeah. the entrance is open. But in Matthew, like you said, there's this big earthquake. There's this whole event. An angel's on the stone and it rolls away and the women are terrified and the angel says, don't be scared or something like that. Tries to calm them down as this natural event is happening. And going along with that, speaking of the angels, how many angels were there? Right. There's one angel in Matthew, two angels in John, one angel in Mark, and then two angels in Luke. And then did they see Jesus risen at the tomb? Right. Matthew and John suggest that Jesus is there. Yeah. But in Mark and Luke, there's no Jesus. Right. And then on top of that, it's the actions of the women after. So in Matthew, Mary is told to go to the disciples and tell them what has happened. The actual ending of Mark, not counting the additions that were put in later. Yeah. And they're in brackets to show that it was added in. Right. But the actual ending of Mark, it says that they left that place and told no one. Okay. So in Mark, they didn't leave and tell anybody. Yeah. But in Matthew and Luke, they go and tell the apostles immediately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In John, Mary Magdalene sees that the stone has been rolled away and she runs and gets Peter and James and John. Right. And they come look too. And then when they leave, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Yeah. And so it's just, these are very different accounts. Now, what we did and what is perfectly reasonable is you can say, well, the whole point is Jesus rose from the dead. Right. Great. All of them say that. They all say that. That's the point. Fine. But... If we're claiming this to be the perfect word of God that doesn't have errors, these four accounts of the resurrection can't all be perfectly true. Right. Unless you create a fifth gospel for yourself and you create your own narrative, your own Bible, and you amalgamate them all. Yeah. Which is what we were doing with our theological puzzles is we were like, okay, we have all these different stories. We're going to make them all into our own Bible. We're going to compose our own gospel to figure out what Mm -hmm. really happened by amalgamating them all. Yeah. And that was becoming more and more problematic for me the more we studied the Bible. Absolutely. Me too. But the reality is you can justify anything. Right. Right. We've said this before already. You can. You can justify anything if you are insistent that it has to be true and it has to all work together. You have a story that I really like about Harry Potter. There's a plumbing issue where wizards don't need to use plumbing, but the whole Chamber of Secrets is based off Hogwarts having this elaborate plumbing system throughout the castle. Then there was also the invention of plumbing that Hogwarts may have been built before the invention of plumbing. Right. So there's different problems that fans have depicted and explained. But then there's other fan theories on how to explain it. If you start with the presumption that the story is perfect and it all fits together, then when these fans come up with these problems, you can find solves. Like one solve was that, well, the wizards are magical and so they can use time turners to come up with the plumbing and invent it early. Mm -hmm. Or you can come up with, well, they wanted the muggle-born wizards to feel at home and so they want it to look aesthetically pleasing and comfortable and like other places. So they go ahead 
ahead and create the plumbing to fit it in. And then J.K. Rowling comes in and says, no, it was just an issue I didn't think of, but those are some fun fixes. Thanks. And so you can really justify anything and reconcile anything when you start with the presumption that it's already perfect. Exactly. And so you got to remove that presumption. What we had to do was remove that presumption and see if it fit together by its own merit. Right. And when we did that, when we read things like in Acts 1, where it says that the disciples were not to leave Jerusalem, and then compare that with Matthew, where the disciples are in Galilee. Jesus tells them to go to Galilee in Matthew. Matthew. And then, yeah, he meets them there and gives them the Great Commission. But in Luke's account, the the, the writer of Luke also wrote Acts. And so that account in Acts 1, Jesus tells them, don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit is poured out on you. Right. And so there's this discrepancy. But you can find ways to reconcile it if you you are starting with the presumption that this is true. Right. The reality is those don't. Yeah. They do contradict each other. And while that doesn't have to break your faith, what it did for us was it is it caused us to kind of like step back and say, wait, maybe this isn't perfect. Right. That was the beginning of the disillusionment when we were able to say, maybe this isn't the perfect word of God. Because then once you say, maybe there are problems with the text, then you can start seeing other issues. For me, the disillusionment came in not necessarily because there were these errors or these contradictions or or whatever, but a little bit more so it was what these differences revealed. About authorship? About authorship. I started to notice or I started to to accept, I guess, that these are very human documents. Right. As an English teacher, I teach my students to look for things like author's purpose. And when we kind of, we discussed a little bit about those, some of those contradictions. Right. When we started reading the Bible more horizontally. Right. We discussed some of those differences and seeing Mm -hmm. those differences in that horizontal reading, which have we talked about horizontal reading before? No, but that was one of the things where we started really finding the bulk of our contradictions was when we started finding a story in Matthew, finding the same story in Mark, Luke, and John. And then you would read the story in Matthew. I'd read it in Mark and we'd compare the differences. Right. And then we'd go to the next gospel and we'd just compare all the differences between the same stories. Right. And there are a lot of differences. The stories, they don't line up. The way that we noticed that was that horizontal reading. When we did that and we started to see the differences, what I actually went back and did next was I then read them vertically again. Mm -hmm. But this time, my whole goal was to ask at the beginning of the read-through, what is Matthew trying to do? Right. What's his goal? What's What's the author's intent? Right. What I discovered for Matthew was Matthew talks about fulfilling prophecy more than any other gospel writer. Mm -hmm. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus is the Messiah of prophecy. Right. And he picks out things from the Old Testament that if you didn't have the New Testament, you would think that's weird that that's a prophecy. Yeah. But he turns things into prophecies from the Old Testament and then fulfills them to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He does. And on top of that, he even gets them wrong sometimes. Right. Like Mary. Like the Virgin Mary. Right. Yeah. Which is ironic that this is a doctrine that has defined Christianity, that Mary had to be a virgin. Because Matthew quotes the Septuagint when he points out that Mary was a virgin. Which the Septuagint is the, the Greek, Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. Yeah. The first issue with this is that word virgin is a mistranslation in the Septuagint of the Hebrew word. Which just means young lady. There are other words in the Hebrew Old Testament that mean virgin and it's not the word that's used here. Okay. The Septuagint mistranslates the Hebrew word young lady into virgin Virgin. and then Matthew quote unquote fulfills the prophecy of the Messiah coming from a virgin because he's using the Septuagint 
Septuagint and not the original Hebrew. Right. But that isn't even my biggest issue with it. This prophecy in Isaiah 7 is not about a future coming Messiah that's going to save the whole world. The prophecy is that that these two kingdoms that you fear will be gone and they won't actually destroy you. In order to prove himself, apparently, God wants Ahaz to ask for a sign. And when he doesn't, Isaiah gives him what the sign's going to be anyway. And the sign is a young woman is going to have a son. They will be Emmanuel. And before that young man is old enough to distinguish between good and evil, these kingdoms will be wiped away. Wow. That's yeah. the prophecy. And somehow Matthew takes that and makes it about Jesus. Right. So we have this prophecy that Matthew uses to talk about the birth of Jesus. Right. And how he had to be the son of a virgin. Mm -hmm. When the prophecy isn't about a coming Messiah. Right. At all. And we would have said that too when we were studying the Bible is when you're reading the Old Testament, you don't know what things are going to be prophecies and which ones aren't Mm -hmm. until authors tell you that it was a prophecy. And then, well, it's prophecy because they say it's a prophecy. Right. And it's fulfilled because they say it's fulfilled. So then you trust that authorship because it's the infallible. Word of God. Right. But you have to start with that. It's the infallible word of God. Right. And what I was noticing here is, okay, well, so this is weird. It doesn't really line up with the Old Testament. It's but been... what it does for Matthew is it shows that Jesus fulfills prophecy. Right. It fulfills his purpose. What was disillusioning wasn't even that Matthew got the prophecy wrong. Right. It wasn't even that Matthew was using the Septuagint versus the Hebrew Old Testament. Mm-hmm. It was that Matthew, over and over and over again, is trying to make sure that Jesus fulfills prophecy because that is his goal. Matthew has this singular purpose. Another example is John's gospel. In almost every chapter, you can see the word believe multiple times. John is very clear that he's writing his gospel so that his audience would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And John also, more than the other gospel writers, includes signs and wonders, includes miracles, these incredible miracles that aren't recorded in the other gospels. To reiterate what it was for me, it was the seeing that human quality of how they were constructing a story themselves for a purpose, just like any other human writer. Right. Up to that point, I was under that impression that this is the word of God. What is it? 2 Timothy 3.16, for all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and rebuking and training and righteousness. Yeah, that it was breathed out by God. But the signature on each of these writings is not the signature of a perfect deity that has one cohesive story. Right. It's the signature of humans telling their stories and then later people put them together. Right. In a different way, the humanity of it drew me out of believing the Bible is a perfect word of God as well. I remember one of the founding problems that I had once I had studied the Bible a lot was the issue with the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And I brought this up to you several times because in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, there are many passages that seem to indicate that the only marriage that honors God is between man and woman. Like it said man and woman many times. And homosexuality is listed several times amongst other sinful things. And that bothered me a lot. But then you think back to, well, it was the culture of the time. These human authors were writing their stories from a perspective of it being culturally acceptable for men and women to get married and for men to be the head of the woman. And they were kind of in charge. Yeah, I think something that kind of adds to that illustration is... 
the way the Old Testament deals with accusations of rape or infidelity. Right. It was very troublesome to me. If a woman was raped, she had to marry her rapist a lot of the times. Right. Or if she was shown to not be a virgin after she's married, she has to go through all these extra, like she could be stoned or cast out. Yeah, she could be stoned to death. And there's no (laughs) rules about men. If a man is found out to not be a virgin, what happens to him? Or those consequences are never spoken of at all. So part of the patriarchy and the culture is written into the text which is the humanity of the text. Right. What I think shows the humanity of the text there is that some of these things, especially in speaking of the Old Testament law and how the law of God dealt with these situations, these laws of you stone a woman to death for being caught in adultery. When there's a guy who's caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath, the day of rest, they kill him. Right, they stone him. By the command of God. Right, because he's working on the Sabbath. And God sanctioned this murder. Right. A number of... Atrocities. uh, Yeah. um, Going in and committing genocide. Yes, to whole nations. Which is what every other god did. They wanted their people to conquer other people's land. The god of the Old Testament is the god of the people of the Old Testament. Right. The humanity of it is seeping through. Right. It's these people using their god to justify stealing other people's land. Right. Their god is a reflection of their own morality. Exactly. And I would say the god of the New Testament seems to be a reflection of the people's morality. The claim is made that you can't judge the authors of old on today's standards. Like, you can't project our morality onto them. And the problem with that is, is we're not projecting that upon the people of the time. I'm saying that God, who is throughout time, should have had a higher morality than the people. He should be consistent. And so the morality shouldn't change Right. Within the Bible. We should look at the Bible and say, yep, morality is on point with today's morality if God... And maybe not all of today's morality, but like it should at least still be relevant. Right. But even in the New Testament, especially in the Old Testament, but throughout the New Testament, we see God telling slaves to submit to their masters and to do good work. To work hard and not complain. Those kinds of things. Right. What a great testament it would have been to a real God, to a real good God, if instead of that, if he had said, you can't own people. But if for whatever reason that's too much to ask, then... If your masters treat you unfairly, boycott, refuse to work, unite together and take them down, you know, even peacefully. You don't even have to do it violently. If you're being treated unfairly, refuse to work, form an alliance and demand to be treated fairly. But instead, we see the morality of the times seeping through the authorship and the humanity just glowing through. Exactly. So what questions can we take away from this discussion. And the first for me, I think, would be if you view any text as the perfect word of God, what do you think it would take to disillusion you to that idea? So not necessarily renounce your faith, but what would change your mind to this being the perfect word of God? Yeah. There's at least errors in it, like accepting that there's errors in it. Right. That's a good one. If there are errors in the Bible, would that ruin your faith? It led to the downfall of ours. It did. It wasn't the final nail or anything, but it definitely led to the dump. And there were many more problems than what we discussed today. Sure. But it was one of the notches. What issues with the Bible led you to not trust it as the word of God? Do you think the God of the Old Testament sounds like the same God that Christians worship today? Do contradictions and key differences 
in storytelling mean that something can't be completely true? Or is it that it's still completely true, we just don't understand why those differences are there or the contradictions? And which is a better way to look at any writing? Right. I remember thinking sometimes about how many contradictions I was finding, and then I'd get an answer to one of my contradictions and find out how it's not really a contradiction and how it does fit together, and then just kind of assume that everything else must have an answer because this one question did. So are you willing to tackle the hard contradictions too? So that was, what would it take to change your mind that the Bible is the perfect word of God? If there are errors in the Bible, would that ruin your faith? What issues with the Bible led you to distrust it as the word of God? Does the God of the Old Testament sound like the same God as the one Christians worship today? And if there's a contradiction in a story, does that mean it can't be completely true? Thanks for listening to Questioning Faith. We hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts or questions... You can reach us at Kenny and Monica Ask Questions at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our next episode, Morning Faith, will be available on October 21st. But until then, remember, always ask questions.